Welcome to the latest instalment of The Curious Capitalist, brought to you by the Board of Conscious Capitalism in Connecticut. The Curious Capitalist is a series of podcasts where we take the opportunity to not only speak to board members from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter, but also to business owners, startups and entrepreneurs. The Curious Capitalist is available on all of the world's biggest podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. Never miss an episode again and subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts from. On this episode of The Curious Capitalist, we are excited to be speaking with Gary Ridge, the CEO and chairman of the WD40 company. Now, Gary has been with WD40 for over 35 years. He is also the founder of The Learning Moment. He's also a professor and also an author. He's managed to fit a lot in. Now, since WD40's founding in San Diego back in 1953, they have grown their business into an unmistakable brand known and loved the world over. There is so much more for us to learn about this company and their emphasis on the company's so-called tribal culture and doing the right thing. Glenn McDermott, the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut Executive Director, now that's a long title, and a fellow Australian will be asking the questions today on this exciting episode of The Curious Capitalist. Gentlemen, welcome to The Curious Capitalist. Great, Claire, nice to be with you. Hey, listen, I've got to give you my official introduction. You didn't do it correctly. Ah, oh, go on, what did you get wrong? You ready for this? I'm ready. G'day, I'm Gary Ridge. I'm the consciously incompetent, probably wrong and roughly right, chairman and CEO of WD40 Company. Beautiful, that's staying in, that's staying in. Good man, good man. <laughs> Thank you for the introduction set up, Claire, and appreciate the correction there, Gary. That's a title that I'm not even going to attempt to repeat, but really enjoyed the spirit of our uh, forthright Australian language here, and let's hope we can continue that through this conversation. You've got a very interesting history here with WD-40, so tell me a little bit about what you did to get to this point in your career. I have no idea, but I'll tell you what happened. So, you know, I'm from Sydney, Australia. I was born in a little suburb of Sydney called Five Dock. I went to Five Dock Public School, Dremoyne Boys High School. I started work when I was 16 with a retailing group in Australia called Waltons. You may remember them, Glenn. They're not in business anymore. I was a management trainee there. I did their management trainee course. I went to school at Sydney Technical College after work and eventually um, moved up the ranks at Walton's at a fairly quick rate. I think I was the youngest department manager ever appointed in the store. Through that, I got a real interest in, in sales. I was asked to join a company that basically sold auto accessories. And Glenn, we were just talking a minute ago about Canberra, your hometown. In fact, one of my territories was Canberra. Um, I used to drive down to Canberra and call on the auto stores down there. And through that, I got to know the people at Hawker Pacific and Hawker Pacific were the the licensee for WD-40 in Australia. And they asked me to join them as their sales manager. I joined them. And eventually I ended up as managing director of the consumer products division of Hawker Pacific, which had brands like WD-40 and in fact, another well-known brand called Armorall. And through that, I got to know the people at WD-40. I, I'd fly over for the sales conferences as the representative. And I think my claim to fame at WD-40 was leading a busload of Americans to sing Thai kangaroo down sport on the way back from a very loud dinner in Tijuana <laughs> after a number of margaritas. That's and awesome. anyhow, eventually, eventually, 
I was approached by WD-40 in 1987. And at that time, they had a real interest in growing their business globally. And I'd done a lot of work actually in Asia by it. And they said, hey, uh, we're going to open a subsidiary in Australia. Uh, would you like to join us and do that? My dad was an engineer. He worked for the same company from when he was 15 to when he was 65. And I said to dad, dad, what do you think about joining WD-40? And he said, you can't go wrong with that stuff, son. Oh. So how I got here was I listened to my dad. <laughs> oh, my goodness me. You can't grateful be dad for the, <clears throat> Yeah, grateful for the, the brand recognition of WD-40 in Australian um, suburban garages to and, and for him to give you the green light because it's clearly a brand that we all recognise. We've all used for multiple reasons, most of them which are probably unauthorised, but it's that kind of utility that must be in everyone's toolbox. And so the Tiny Kangaroo Down Sport on the bus, I have a very clear vision of what that looks like. Would that have been a sort of a, a pivot point in your career? I mean, it probably wasn't intended to be, but it, it, in reflection, it probably was. Oh, yeah, of course. It was a pivot point. And, you know, it was exciting to join a global brand that I really did have a lot of respect for. And I opened our Australian subsidiary on July 4th, 1987, with a fax machine under my bed in my home in, in Sydney. And six months later, we opened the office. It was so much fun to, to spin up something from zero, to learn to how to set up a corporation, to do the recruiting, to set up the distribution. And from 87 to 94, I was having a grand old time down there. I, we were building businesses in countries like, I think I took the first can of WD-40 into mainland China, building businesses in, in Asian countries. And I was having a conversation with the then president of the company in 1994. And I said, is there anything else you like me to do. I, I think I could do a little more work for you if you like. And he said, funny, you should ask, do you want to move to the United States? And I said, what? He said, do you want to move to the United States? I said, what? <laughs> he said, why don't you come over here and help us build our global brand? Nobody else really has the passion you have. And I did have a passion. I thought we could take the blue and yellow can with little red top to the world. There are lots of squeaks in China that we needed to take care of and lots of <laughs> rust around the world that needed taken care of. So I disrupted myself completely. I, we packed up our toys, sold everything in Australia, and we moved to San Diego. And then three years later, that CEO retired. And for some reason, the board of directors of a US public company thought that this one-time traveling salesman, Aussie bloke, might be okay to lead a US public company. And, uh, and that's where the fun really started. And I was scared stiff. I really... I knew the brand and I knew what it could do, but I was unsure on how do you build an organization. So I went back to school. I looked around and I said, I need to work this out. So I actually went back to school and I went to the University of San Diego and I did a master's degree in leadership. And that's where I met my, my true mentor and very dear friend, Dr. Ken Blanchard, the one minute manager. I learned the power of servant leadership. And subsequently, I was on his board for 10 years of his company, and we wrote a book together. He's 83 years old now. I play nine holes of golf with him most Wednesday afternoons when he's in town. And in fact, my wife and I will be flying up to Skinny Atlas, which is on the Finger Lakes in upstate New York, to spend uh, some days with he and Margie, where they go every summer in a couple of weeks. So a truly treasured relationship that I've been very grateful. Is that where you started using the word culture? within a corporation, well, that sort of adoption? Funny you should ask that, Glenn. I knew what culture was. I remember at Dremoyne Boys High School, I had a science teacher, and one day the science teacher gave us all a Petri dish. 
And he said, what we're going to do is we're going to grow culture in this Petri dish. And what I remembered from that was it's, it's what you put in the Petri dish that's important. And it's how you take care of the Petri dish that's important in growing culture. So I said, well, in an organization, what is culture? And I stole an algorithm from Simon Sinek, who was a friend of mine. He wrote in his book, The Infinite Game, that culture equals values plus behavior. And I said, Simon, I just want to add to that times consistency. And that's what I learned in my science class. It's what you put in the Petri dish that's important and what you do with that Petri dish and how you watch it that's so important. So our job as leaders to build great cultures is to ensure the ingredients to build great cultures are great. Those are values in an organization and the behaviors. And then we need to watch that Petri dish all the time. And we have to love our people enough and be brave enough, not only to reward and applaud the great behavior, but to redirect the behavior that is putting toxins into that Petri dish and treat it. And that's how you build culture. I love the Petri dish analogy because it's a, a sort of a recipe that is a totally controlled experiment. And you're right, it is the ingredients that you apply and, and remove that grow this thing called culture, which is one of the things that we talk about within the conscious capitalist community is having a higher purpose and stakeholders. But leadership and culture are two of the tenants that are sometimes most often misunderstood or should I say most hard to understand. So what is it about what you call your tribal culture that is easy to understand, easy to follow and a fun place to work? So Aristotle, who was born in 384 BC, said, pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. Okay, so if our desire is to do great work, isn't our responsibility as leaders to put pleasure in the job? Duh, it's 384 BC, we haven't worked that out yet, he told us what to do. Interestingly enough, when I was flying from Los Angeles to Sydney early in my leadership role at WD-40, I was reading some work of the Dalai Lama and he made this statement which basically has become my life purpose. Our purpose in life is to make people happy. If you can't make them happy, at least don't hurt them. And what I saw around me, uh, Glenn and Claire, were a lot of leaders hurting people because they were using toxic leadership behaviors. And in fact, I invented someone called Al, the soul-sucking CEO. He's the CEO of Fear Incorporated. And he has these behaviors that are very toxic. You know, getting back to the, the question of tribes, the other thing that became clear to me in my studies was some of the work of Maslow. And he has a hierarchy to self-actualization. And the first two rungs of that are basically, do you provide safety, security, and sustenance so people can survive? The third one is love or belonging. And what I saw in organizations is people didn't feel like they belong. And I looked at, well, what's the basis of belonging in the world? And it's tribalism. We all came from tribes. You know, Ugg, the caveman, came from a tribe. So I looked at, funnily enough, and studied some of the behaviors and attributes of the indigenous Australians and the Fijian Islanders. And I came up with a model that basically says to belong, there are certain things that have to exist. And let's, you and I, go back thousands of years to our homeland. And let's go to the middle of Australia and let's peek out from behind a Coolabar tree beside a billabong and observe some Indigenous Australians at a meeting. What would we see the wise, elder Indigenous Australians doing? They'd be teaching the younger ones to throw a boomerang. Why? Because the boomerang was the tool of survival. So what's the number one responsibility of a tribal leader? 
to be a learner and a teacher. So tribalism is to us is creating a place where people belong and having attributes of the leadership that actually help those that we lead step into the best version of their personal self. And learning and teaching is the number one of those. Very lovely, eloquent, tribal understanding from one Australian to another. I'm indebted to the Indigenous community in Australia for similar lessons, but I love the way you portray that one. How do you think your customers are aware of the culture of your tribal culture with WD-40? And if so, how? Well, this goes back basically to the purpose of the company. So our purpose, if you think about why do we exist, you know, if I said to you, Glenn, you know, what do you think the purpose of WD-40 is? What might you say, Glenn? Removing squeaks would be the logical answer, but help me out. Ah, Wrong, Ah, wrong. Here it is. We exist to create positive, lasting memories, solving problems in factories, homes, and workshops around the world. So if you're sitting next to me on an airplane and you ask me, hey, what do you do? I'll tell you, I'm in the memories business. And they say to me, what, do you work for Disney? No, I work for WD-40. And you know what the pe- someone says? I remember when. And I'm sure, you know, you had a farm outside Canberra when you were growing up. I'm sure you can remember when your dad and you were doing something on that farm and little using a little bit of WD-40 to create a positive, lasting memory. So our business is about creating positive, lasting memories. That's the connection we have with our end users. And of course, with our stakeholders. And our definition of stakeholders is a group of people whom without their support, the company likely would not exist. So when we look at stakeholders, it's a very wide range of people that we want to create positive, lasting memories for. Or even when you think about it, we want to create positive, lasting memories for Mother Nature as well. That's why, you know, we're very focused on some mandatories in our company. One of the mandatories we have is we will have no cancer causing chemicals in anything we make because our number one value is we value doing the right thing. Our number two value is we value creating positive lasting memories in all of our relationships. So our customers know because we are there to ensure that the memories we create are positive and to do that we have to respect our stakeholders and our stakeholders are a wide range of people without without whom we would likely not exist. So to what degree has the culture driven the growth and what attributions could you make to it? So in any business, you need two things. You need a really good strategy, okay? So, you know, after being an apprentice to leadership for 25 years, I think I can work with our people to write a really good strategy and I'll take it over to, you know, a good business school and say, hey, mark up my strategy. And okay, you got 60 out of 100. Most strategies are right, probably wrong and roughly right. But then it's the execution of the strategy. So here's the simple equation around that. The other thing you need is the will of the people. So you can have a really great strategy, but let's say your employee engagement or the will of the people in your organization is 20%. So 20% of your people go to work every day, are purpose-driven and passionate about what they do and how they do it. 20 times 50 is 1,000. There's your outcome. But let's say you have an organization that has a highly engaged workforce or very high will of the people. So for the sake of math, let's say that 80% of your people go to work every day and are passionate about your business and enthusiastic, are treated with respect and dignity. You care about them. You're candid with them. You hold them accountable. You expect them to be responsible. 80 times 50 is 4,000. So you can have the best strategy in the world. But if people aren't passionate about doing what they're doing, if they're not excited about going to work every day, as if you as the leader are not dedicated to helping them play their best game as their coach, 
then you're not going to maximize your outcome. And those examples are everywhere around the world. You know, during COVID, a friend of mine, Hubert Jolet, he wrote a book about the turnaround of the company he led at the time, which was Best Buy. And he did some research in that book. ADP did it around the world. They measured that employee engagement was down to as low as 16%, which means 84% of people were disengaged or, or totally disengaged. That's not going to get you a great outcome. Now, uh, our chairman, Gavin, who's a boat builder, often talks about the fact that most people work sort of 90,000 hours in their life. And yet, like you said, the engagement levels are very low. And some employees are actually sort of drilling holes beneath the waterline, so to speak. So, you know, there can be a sort of toxicity involved with that. So why do you think it's as a leadership attribute that culture is given such a low recognition when its contribution can be so high? Short-term thinkers driven by wanting short-term results instead of playing the infinite game. Ego. You know, if I talk about the guy I spoke about earlier, who is Al, the soul-sucking CEO, right? So let's talk about Al. Let's talk about some of Al's attributes. And, and I, as I talk about Al's attributes, people listening on this call will go, you know what? I know Al, unfortunately. So here we go. Al is the master of control. He's a know-it-all. He's corporate royalty. I'm Al, the soul-sucking CEO. I have crawled up this corporate ladder over many years. Thou shall bow down to Al. Al has the biggest office in the building, probably a private car space. Someone makes him coffee in the morning. He's never seen in the cafeteria with the troops. It's always about Al. He thinks learning is for losers. The Curious Capitalist podcast on behalf of the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter is created and produced by Red Rock Branding. If you are enjoying this episode, please subscribe to and share this podcast today. Al's ego eats his empathy instead of his empathy eating his ego. Al has all the answers, particularly all the wrong ones. And if they are wrong, Al never takes the blame. He always blames someone else. He's, he must always be right, never disagree with Al. Feed, he, he loves a fear-based culture. He's, he thinks micromanagement is essential. He's got to have his nose in it, everything that goes on. He doesn't follow through for it with his commitments, and he hates feedback. So there's, that's why those behaviors that are within people are the reason why culture isn't thriving within organization. But if you think about the other guy, the servant leader, the servant leader, he loves and involves his people. He's always in servant leadership mode. He's a coach. Now, let's think about a coach. You probably have seen a rugby game in your time, Glenn. You know, if you've ever seen a great rugby coach actually run onto the field and play the ball, no. But what Al does, he wants to play on the field. A great coach spends their time on the sideline, in the locker room, observing the play, building trust, giving feedback, and sometimes asking those of the people that are in the bleachers in the stand how he thinks the players are playing. So that's what a good coach does. This, the, a great leader is always connected with, with emotional intelligence. He loves learning or she loves learning moments. They have a heart of gold and a backbone of steel. You know, leadership is a balance between being tough-minded and tender-hearted and the genius is in the middle of that. They're champions of hope. They know micromanagement isn't scalable. They do what they say they do and they treasure the gift of feedback. Wow, what a beautiful description. That's just wow. First of all, it would appear that you've met some of my previous bosses in my previous life really well, quite intimately, it would appear. But what a wonderful way to not just explain the difference, but to inspire those people who are leaning towards that micromanagement, that hyper vigilance on their workforce. What a wonderful 
eloquent way of describing it, Gary. Well, and you know, I coach some CEOs and when I'm asked whether I'd coach someone and they ask me, what will I do? I, I say, I'll do these three things. I'm going to help you see who you really are as a leader, because unfortunately, most owls don't know they, who they are. But I'm going to help. I'm going to help hold a mirror to you. So I'm going to I'm going to bring out your owl. Then after I do that, I'm going to help you identify the behaviours you should turn up the, the turn down the volume on of leadership and turn up the volume on. And then I'm going to help you become a better coach because if you become a better coach, you will inspire those that you lead. And then culture will start to grow within your organization. Pretty simple. There, there's a sort of a vulnerability that's required to not be that person, Gary, and, and a confidence that's sort of linked to that. And I'm wondering about the leadership style and developing a culture. This I've also seen many corporate offices where you know their value and mission statement are framed up on the walls, and yet their behaviour is not reflected in that. So a lot of there's a lot of sort of fake news in this sort of culture world. What sort of tips would you give for those looking for authenticity? Are there any kind of filters that you would apply? Culture is a shadow of the leadership. So I agree with you. I, I just go crazy when I go into organizations and I see the here are our values up on the wall in these lovely frames. And then you look at the behaviors of the people around you and they're completely in opposite to the behaviors that would build great cultures. So, you know, observe, you know, if I was going to buy a company, you know what I'd do? I'd sit in the parking lot in the morning and watch people come to work to see how did they behave and what did they look like. So if you're going to work at an organization and you want to see what the culture's like, hang out there for a little while. You know, how are you greeted at the reception? When you walk around or, or just what's the feeling of the place when you go in there? You can feel it, whether this is a command and control or it's one that's, and vulnerability is so important. The three best words I learned in my life were, I don't know. And I got really, really comfortable with those three words. That is absolutely my experience. The most powerful thing I ever learned is I don't know, because you would try to find the answer for a million different silly questions that actually weren't in my wheelhouse. You're absolutely right. I tell people that often about I don't know. It's the most powerful thing. It's incredible. I'll, I'll tell you an interesting, if we have time, I'll tell you an interesting little story about when I first moved to the United States. So I moved to the United States and I was in a meeting in our offices in San Diego. And I'm sitting there and a person from the outside came to give us a presentation on something. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening and I, so we're about five or six minutes into this. And I think to myself, I have no clue what that person's talking. They were doing what I call camouflaging the issue with confusion to make out how smart they were. That's what they were doing. So here I am, this Aussie bloke, you know, I put up my hand and said, excuse me, excuse me. I'm sorry. You know, I'm the dumb guy from Australia, but I have no clue what you're talking about. What do you think everyone else in the room did? They went, because they didn't know either. It's just that I was open enough to say, I don't know what you're talking about. And I think that's the vulnerability you've got to say. You know, I, I'm consciously incompetent. As I said, I'm probably wrong and roughly right on in most things. And I'm okay with that. And if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong damn room. You know, that's the issue. So to me, vulnerability is so important. And I think being an Aussie, that helps a lot. How does you it know, help? You know, we have permission to be able to say we're different. And most people like Australians anyhow, you know. They, they... <laughs> but, you know, culturally, I was thinking about Australia versus the US. And I don't know where, where you grew up, Gary, but well, actually I do. It was a five doc. But, you know, there was this thing that we used to call the tall poppy syndrome where we <laughs> didn't used to encourage high achievers. And so we 
as kids, I think, were sort of modelled into becoming average. And obviously that a lot of kids didn't listen to that message because Australians have, have a pretty good track record in sports and music and theatre and lots of industries where the leadership has been really profound. But culturally, do you think there is a, a difference between Australia and the US? And if so, what does that look like? Yeah, I do believe. And let me say this high achievers and tall poppy thing. I don't quite agree with you, Glenn. I think, yes, we didn't respect the tall poppy. But what we do respect is commitment and hard work in Australia. We do respect that. And I think people get that mixed up a little bit. The other thing I think in Australia, and, and, and this became clear to me when I came here with a very simple thing. If I asked you, Glenn, hey, mate, would you do me a favour? Your answer would be, yes, what is it? And the reverse of that, if I ask someone to do me a favour is, they'll ask first, what is it? Then yes. So I think in the Australian culture, our belief is, I'm not going to really ask you to do anything that I don't think you're going to feel comfortable with. So, you know, if you ask me, do me, if I say, sure, Glenn, what do you want? Because uh, there, there's that mateship there that, that's very, that's a bond, I think. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist in the United States or another country, but I just think it's there's something special. You know, you're walking through an airport and you hear an Aussie accent. And you go over and say, hey, mate, where are you from? And before you know it, yeah, I'm from Canberra, I'm from Sydney. And somehow or another, we have a connection and we've, you know, been somewhere in the same sheep shed or something. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a trust thing, isn't it? It's like a trust thing. I mean, yeah. I have it similarly, having obviously relocated to America, is that I will phone, I have to do like phone my bank back home. And suddenly I'm busy mates with this poor woman on the end of the phone because she sounds like me, she responds like yeah. me. And you're right, yeah. it's a, it's, it's kind of a, an unspoken understanding that you would never ask of somebody something you wouldn't yeah. actually do yourself. And you see it in the US too. You know, you look at the cultures that from California to, you know, the South, there are differences. It's and a big that's old okay. country, big country. Yeah. So they often describe the boss as having more influence than your family doctor because you're spending so much more time at work and therefore the relationship that you have with work is really important in, in health outcomes, right? And so as an entrepreneur, I think it helps if you adopt that responsibility, if you like, to your team to say that you are setting a culture, a work environment, a safe place to work, a place where you can it's okay to feel vulnerable and share your concerns and it's a safe work environment. What are your thoughts on that in terms of the cultural aspect? Well, of course, you know, I think that it has to be, I say, imagine a place where you go to work every day. You make a contribution to something bigger than yourself. You learn something new, you're protected and set free by a compelling set of values and you go home happy. Happy people create happy families. Happy families create happy communities. Happy communities create happy countries and happy countries create a happy world. So business has the biggest opportunity ever to make a substantial positive difference on the world if we build cultures that send people home happy. And you know, happiness at work is a balance of a number of things. I see our people come to our office in the morning and when they're smiling, they're high-fiving, they're looking, you know, we're talking today about this new work environment. Is it virtual? Is it, you know, what we are, we're in a hybrid situation. But what I've challenged our leadership group around is what do we have to do as an organization to make sure that the person leaving their house this morning is high-fiving their husband, wife, or significant other saying, I can't wait to get into the office today because I am doing fill in the blank with 
fill in the blank. That's what we have. How do we make the drive to the office exciting? Now, one thing I've learned through COVID and like all of us, I, I really wish I'd prayed that this thing never happened. But when I look back on it, it's been an enormous learning opportunity because it slapped le poor leaders up the side of the face and said, we have to start taking more care about our people being happy in the office. A lot of people talk about the great resignation. I call it the great escape. In fact, I recently wrote an article on LinkedIn where I said, are your people escaping to or from your culture? And that's really what it is. Before COVID, people went to work and about 70% of them were disengaged. They were kind of okay and 30% were engaged. And then they went home and life was kind of okay. So, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, world's okay. COVID hit, and now the work situation is unknown, unsure, in a lot of uncertainty, definition of uncertainty, a series of future events that may or may not occur. And there were so many events out there that people didn't know whether they, and then they went home and life wasn't good either or they had to stay at home. So they said, something's got to give up here. And it's either I give up my, my home life. And unfortunately, some people did that. Relationships broke down. Or I'm not going to put up with this toxic boss anymore. I'm not going to put up with this. I'm, I'm going to escape this and I'm going to find something that I really, really feel good about. That's the great escape. So our role as leaders in organizations is to send people home happy. And if we send them home happy, we'll make a positive difference in the I love that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that COVID made it very hard for the owls of the world to continue their regime, you know, their predatory behavior, all of that sort of bad behavior that you talked about. And we've all witnessed within an office environment because it really allowed organizations to test their sense of purpose. And if they didn't have that intact, then whether their workforce was in the office or remote, um, it quickly became evident for those that didn't have that intact or their culture or anything else, in fact. Absolutely. If a company was to come to you, you do your consulting work and they wanted to make a change, you're going to do a seminar or a session where you're going to shine that mirror up to Al and say, look, Al, you know, this is what you're really like. Potentially you should change it. But what about how do we change the hearts and minds of people who are not brave enough yet to get in the room with you? How do we make the, the little steps forward to a more conscious leadership within, you know, small to medium-sized businesses, you know, without big marketing budgets or big training budgets? What would your advice be to little guys? Well, there's four things you need in business. People, purpose, passion, and products. Okay, so the first question I would ask any leader in any entrepreneurial business, are you committed to the fact that you, it's not about you, it's about the, about the people you lead? And that's where I would start. And then I'd look at, do we have a clearly defined purpose in our organization? Can you, is it inspiring? You know, is it something that people you know, get excited about? So let's work on what that is. Let's involve the people in the company. I don't care. You don't need a big marketing budget. You know, when I opened our office in Australia, our re revenue was $1.2 million. You know, my marketing budget was $80,000 in the first year. So you don't need, you just need the commitment. So do we have a clearly defined purpose? Then let's talk about values in the organization. Do we have a set of values that describe the only acceptable behavior in the company? And are they hierarchical? You know, a lot of people have values, but they're not hierarchical. And if you don't have hierarchical values, you get people cherry picking the value to, you know, it's sort of like the a la carte of value. No, you can't do that. So clearly defined purpose. Do we have a clear set of values? If you've got those two, the people, the purpose and the values. Okay, fine. Now, how do we remove fear in the organization? And here's a big one. One of the things that I took away from my, my, my learning at the University of San Diego is what I've now called the learning moment. 
we do not make mistakes. We have learning moments. And what's the definition of a learning moment? A learning moment is a positive or negative outcome of any situation that needs to be openly and freely shared to benefit all people. Your job as a leader is to reduce fear. Now, remember, Al, I told you he was the CEO of of Fear Inc. And the biggest driver of fear is failure. So people don't want to fail. So what we need to do is make sure that we we take out that word of failure and replace it with the power of learning. And remember, I said the number one responsibility of a tribal leader is learning and teaching. Then do we have a way of describing responsibility? So in our company, we have a thing called the Maniac Pledge. May I share it with you? Yes, please. So here's, here's the Maniac Pledge. And it's called the Maniac Pledge because Greg Norman was the maniacal shark in golf. And I, I'm not a very good golfer. In fact, I'm a very poor golfer. But I love some of his clothing with the shark on it. So I call it the Maniac Pledge. And here it is. And we all take this pledge. I am responsible for taking action, asking questions, getting answers, and making decisions. I won't wait for someone to tell me If I need to know, I am responsible for asking. I have no right to be offended that I didn't get this sooner. And if I'm doing something others should know about, I am responsible for telling them. That's the pledge we take to our people, the pledge of responsibility. So you've got dedication to the people, a clear purpose, a clear set of values, the learning moment, and then that sits on four pillars of care, candor, accountability, and responsibility. Care means I'm going to love my people enough, applaud them, and reward them for doing great work. And as a leader, I'm going to be brave enough to redirect them. Candor is no lying, no faking, no hiding. I believe most people don't lie. I believe they fake and hide. Why do they fake and hide? Because they're afraid of Al. They don't want to upset Al, so they fake and hide. As I said, the next one is accountability. What do you expect of me and what do I expect of you? That's your role as a coach. And finally, you take the maniac pledge of responsibility. And you put all that together in an organization very simply, and then you start working towards it. This is simple. It's not easy. And time is not your friend. Remember, culture equals values plus behavior times consistency. So it takes time. So I've just given you the formula. I love it. Right, that's the formula. We're off now. Thanks ever so much. We're going to just package that up and uh, we'll put it into a little training program and start flogging it. No, I'm joking. I love it. (laughs) I I could listen to you speak all day long. You are inspiring and you make work sound desirable. You know, your company sounds massively desirable, a positive place to be. I really do take my hat off to you. 98% of our people globally say they love to tell people they work at WD-40 company, not like. And 97% of the people say they respect their coach, who is their boss. Now, just let me add one more thing. This is not about kumbaya hugs on Friday, free pizzas and popcorn. Over the 25-year period, we've had a compounded annual growth rate of total shareholder return of 15% a year. We've taken our market cap from just under $300 million to $3 billion. We've 6x'd our revenue. And we now sell that blue and yellow can with a little red top in 176 countries around the world. We have offices in 17 countries around the world. And all we do is sell oil in a can. To be honest with you, Gary, I think you need to pull your finger out then. I mean, you're slacking a little bit, I'm, aren't you? I mean, you know. I know. <laughs> I okay, know. One, one more question. I Sorry, Glenn, I interrupted him, but one more question for you. So how many percent, 98% say they love to tell people? Love they, to tell people love. they work at the company. 
Talk to me about the 2%. What work is still to be done within your company? One of the things I've learned as a leader is you can't please all the people all the time. So I'm happy there are 2% out there that maybe they don't love, but I hope they at least like. Good enough. Good enough. Gary, I think that's a great wrap up. The data that you just produced was on my next question, but you clearly rehearsed that well and I think it's a great place to leave it. And I've really learned a lot today. In addition to what I knew about you, this has been a, a terrific experience to hear it in your own language. Fortunately, it's a language that I understand. And thank you so much for your generosity and your success and sharing that willingly with us today on this podcast. And wish you well in the future and perhaps we can bump into you at a pub and discuss this in greater detail. Can't wait, mate. Can't wait. That would be amazing. No Stella, though. No Stella. And do you know the irony <laughs> is I'm about to phone a friend and say, excuse me, you've got any WD-40? I've got a squeaky door. The door of the car started squeaking this morning. I couldn't believe it. I laughed to myself. It's like, God's having a laugh with me here. The door's going, ah! I'm like, I know. I need WD-40. I said, oh, hang on. I've got, oh, I've got an interview with WD-40. <laughs> irony well you know what did you tell me to do a little earlier get your finger out get down to the uh, hardware store and get I'm, yourself I'm gonna pull my finger out and add to those triple X's you got it it's been a privilege and a pleasure thank you so much thank Gary. you all Thanks, right Gary. don't forget life's a gift don't send it back unwrapped thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the curious capitalist if you would like to find out more about conscious capitalism or if you would like to join the local chapter, visit the website connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org. The Curious Capitalist is available on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, subscribe to and share this podcast today. This podcast was created and produced by Red Rock Branding redrockbranding.com